0: So we are about four weeks in to this sermon series on the book of Revelation, and I hope if you've been tuned in and a friend were to ask you about it, you could at this point hopefully say, well, you know, the book of Revelation is maybe not this uh, secret, coded, predictive book about the future that maybe some of us think it is, but more than anything else, the book of Revelation is an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. An apocalypse, remember, just means simply means a revelation, a disclosure, uh, a revealing of the person of Jesus. That's what this book wants to give us, a bigger, clearer, more realistic picture of Jesus and who he is for us right now. And this is what we need right now in this time of great confusion and discouragement and isolation and anxiety and division and polarization, I I, I truly believe that what we need, what we all need most right now is a clearer, bigger vision of Jesus Christ, which will not necessarily change our circumstances, but will change our perspective on our circumstances so that we can, as John says in this book, patiently endure, patiently endure. So last week, we looked at the first of the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the churches, which is probably the most well-known part of the book of Revelation because it's the most accessible. Um, And so today what we're going to do is look at the last, the seventh letter. We're just sampling two, the first, the last. And this particular letter, the letter to Laodicea, is probably the most famous of all, the most familiar of all. But I got to warn you, you got to put on your crash helmet today because it's also the toughest of all. Um, It's also some of the hardest words in the book of Revelation. Uh, This is the only church of the seven that Jesus addresses in which he says nothing positive. He commends them for nothing, nothing praiseworthy. But even then, even with these hard words, Jesus doesn't drop them. Uh, He doesn't kick them to the curb, but he is inviting them to, to be healed and to be set free, he's inviting them to be saved. Uh, Like a really good doctor who is brutally honest with the patient about the diagnosis, but then is ready to give a cure. This is who Jesus is for them and for us today. So Let's listen. Let's unpack these words to the Laodiceans. But let's not forget that these are also words for us. Remember how Jesus ends every one of these letters. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If this were an email from Jesus to the church of Laodicea, our name, third church, would be in the CC box, would be in the CC line because we are meant to also to hear. And every time we hear even a difficult passage like this, as much as we may not want to, we should always be asking, is this true of me? Is this true of us? Whoever has ears, let them hear. So let's look at three things when it comes to this letter, okay? First, let's look at the problem. What is the disease that Jesus, the physician, is diagnosing, what's the problem? Second, uh, we'll look at the prescription what Jesus the physician offers as the cure. And then third, we'll look at the promise, what he offers to give them um, at the end. So the problem, the prescription, and the promise. So first, let's look at the problem. What is it that Jesus is uh, correcting them about? Well, before we look directly at it, I think it's really helpful that we navigate or that we learn a little bit about the context of the city of Laodicea at the time, because Jesus's Diagnosis, as you'll see in just a moment, is intimately related to the character of this particular city and how the church has conformed to it. So Laodicea, uh, one of the ancient seven cities that in the, along the Mediterranean and western Turkey, which at the time Asia Minor, uh, Laodicea was known for four main things in the ancient world. First of all, it was a banking center. It was a major banking center in the ancient world of the time. Lots of money, lots of wealth, lots of banks. All the banks were solvent. Um, in fact, it was so wealthy of a city that in 61 AD, when there was a major hurricane, uh, not a hurricane, major earthquake in Asia Minor, um, in many cities, including Laodicea, were devastated. Laodicea was the only city of all that were hurt that did not Accept any financial help from Rome, from the Imperial Bank. Because they said, Hey, we got it covered. We got enough of money of our own. In fact, they were so self-sufficient that as you see in verse 17, their motto essentially of the city was, We need nothing. That was sort of the de facto slogan of the city. We need nothing. So it was a major banking center. Second, Laodicea was the center of the clothing industry at the time. Uh, The sheep, apparently, in Laodicea, in that region, were very lovely sheep that produced this very beautiful, black, glossy wool. Uh, And the weavers were just cranking out these very good-looking black wool designer tunics. Uh, And they were uh, essentially the fashion center of the time. Garments were exported all over the ancient world. Laodiceans were known as the best-dressed people Of the Roman province of Asia. And so they were the clothing center. And then third, the city had a very famous medical school that specialized in ophthalmology, in the study of the eye. And so people all over Asia would come to Laodicea, especially if they were having eye problems. They were known for this healing eye salve, a healing eye ointment that they produced, that people would come, and it was said to heal people who had weak and failing So, these were the three aspects of Laodicea that they were very, very proud of, that marked the city out as special and as elite and as prominent and secure. They prided themselves in the fact that we need nothing. But there was one more thing that Laodicea was known for, which wasn't quite as positive as banking, clothing, and uh, medicine, and that was its drinking water. Because the city, and this was actually its greatest military vulnerability, that the city had no unique water source. It had no uh, water supply of its own. And so it had to rely on the water sources of its geographic neighbors. And there were two. About six miles to the north was the city Hierapolis, which was known for its healing, hot springs. And about 10 miles to the south was the city of Colasse, which was known for its very clear, refreshing, cold drinking water that flowed from the adjacent mountains. And so the city planners of Laodicea, because they had no water source of its own, essentially had built these aqueducts from Hierapolis to the north and Colossae to the south um, to pipe the water in from these neighboring cities. Now, unfortunately, as the water traveled along these great distances from these other cities, the hot water cooled down from transit and the cold water heated up from the hot Turkish sun So, which essentially resulted in the fact that when it finally got to Laodicea, it was super tepid and lukewarm. To make matters worse, the mineral deposits from the aqueducts themselves, limestone and such, tainted the water so that by the time it got to the city, not only was it lukewarm, but it was positively foul. And so, if you were an unsuspecting visitor... Uh, drinking the water for the first time was known to cause retching. The water made you want to throw up. Okay, so take all that context and read verses 15 and 16 in light of that, all right? What's the problem that Jesus is diagnosing? Let's read what he says. I know your works, your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I mean, this, this would have hit them right where they live, right? Right in their experience. Jesus is saying to them, when it comes to your deeds, when it comes to your practice of the Christian life, it makes me sick it makes my stomach turn. And remember, friends, he's not writing to the pagans. He's not writing to the unbelievers outside of the church. He's writing to his own people. He's saying, when I think about your church, it makes me want to throw up. This is one of the harshest things that Jesus ever says in the entire Bible. Why is he saying this? Is it because they're believing the wrong things? Is it because they're practicing paganism or devil worship or divination, or they're doing really bad stuff. No, Jesus doesn't mention any of that. And actually, from what we can tell from the church, they were good, upright people, moral citizens, doctrinally, theologically correct, orthodox, astute. So what is it? What makes Jesus sick is their spiritual temperature. And that's why this Analogy is so brilliant. You know, hot spring water is great. It has all these healing properties. Cold water is fantastic. It's, you know, so refreshing on a hot day. Even coffee or tea is great, hot or cold. But lukewarm? Nobody wants that. It can literally be nauseating. And Jesus is drawing a comparison between the temperature of this city's water and the spiritual temperature of this city's church. He's saying... You have lost your wholehearted devotion to me. You are so thoroughly compromised and your complacency is so pervasive that there is no longer anything hot or healing or cold or refreshing about your faith. It is bland and tepid and lifeless and it makes me sick. I mean, how does this happen? How does this happen to a church? Verse 17 is very clarifying. Look at the next verse. It says, Jesus says, you, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. See, what appears to have happened is that, you know, the, the Christians who live in Laodicea had begun boasting in the very same things as the citizens of the society around them did. Power, wealth, beauty, success, All the rest. Somehow, in the midst of a very hostile Roman Empire, the Laodicean Church had adapted so well that they could thrive and live very comfortably. And we know that Christian communities in the first century were under tremendous stress to compromise to the imperial Roman cult, not only to swear allegiance to Caesar, but also to live by the values and the priorities of the unjust and idolatrous Roman Empire. And so it looks like what happened is the Laodiceans had just given in. They succumbed to the pressure. You know, being too hot would get them in trouble. Being too cold could get them in trouble. So lukewarm just enabled them to sort of continue on with their faith, have sort of a private, you know, me and Jesus kind of individual relationship with him, keep it in their religious sphere, but then to live according to the values and the priorities of the state. And Jesus is sickened by this. He's sickened by their compromise. He says, don't you see these things that you're putting so much of your stock and identity and your wealth, your power, your success, your beauty are actually killing you, undermining your faith, leading you to depend on yourself and your abilities and your strength rather than the mercy and grace of God. The very things that you are proudest of are putting them in profound spiritual danger. Y'all, it is a scary truth that again and again, the Bible draws a direct link between being wealthy, capable, and accomplished and being spiritually lukewarm. It is, the, it is the two wealthiest churches of the seven that Jesus has the strongest criticism for. And if you read the gospels, it is the wealthy, prosperous, successful people that Jesus gave the strongest warnings to. Why? Because when you're accomplished and when you're smart and when, and when you've got it going on and when you're on the top and when you make a lot of money, you might say with your mouth, you know, I'm a sinner, saved by grace. But existentially, it's not real to you. The love of God doesn't grip you. It doesn't electrify you. It doesn't change you. You say you're a sinner, but actually you kind of don't feel that way at all. You sort of feel like you're a pretty competent, self-made person. And so there is this profound link between being affluent, powerful, accomplished, and smart, and yet being the kind of spiritually lukewarm person that makes Jesus sick. And this is serious. Brothers and sisters, can you hear me on this? This is serious. Contextually speaking, we are the church of Laodicea. Not only do we live in the wealthiest country in the history of the world— but our specific church is a very wealthy church made up of strong, accomplished, affluent, successful people. We would be complete fools to not listen to this letter as a letter to us. Today's World Communion Sunday. It's says, Sunday we remember that we are part of this global international church. And do you know that the average Christian in the world today is a young black or brown woman who speaks a language other than English? That's the average Christian in the world. The majority Of the church. Christians in the world today do not live in the West. They live in Africa, Asia, or Central and South America. And the majority of those Christians are women and they are poor. And the churches in those places are the most thriving and vibrant churches on the planet. And do you know what these Christians say when they travel to the US and they see the church here? They usually are too polite to say it. But if you push them and press them on it, they will. What they will say is that they are amazed and they are appalled by our lukewarmness. They are astonished at how complacent American churches can be. They're amazed about how little we pray. They're amazed at how much money we make and how little, comparatively speaking, we give away. They're amazed at how afraid we are, especially how afraid we are to identify ourselves as Believers, even to like our colleagues at work, when so many friends in the global south are being persecuted and even imprisoned for their faith, they see this about us, but we can't see it about ourselves. We bemoan the cultural compromise that we see in our culture out there. You know, we do. I do too. We bemoan how liberal the society has become. We wring our hands about how, you know, the deep Judeo Christian moral foundations of our society are eroding and how life is not valued and how free speech is being suppressed and how progressive values have overtaken our institutions. We, we, we are alarmed about these things. And friends, I want you to know as your pastor, I am alarmed about them too. But what we do not see is our own compromise. We do not see our own complacency. We can't see what our friends in the global church see about ourselves, what I dare say Jesus sees about us. What is the Spirit saying to the churches? How is the Laodicean sickness our own? If Jesus were writing a letter to third church, what would he say? What are the things that he would point out? What are the things that he would say? This is why... The gospel is not being unleashed here. Why the joy of the gospel is not being fully experienced among us. You know, I hear a lot, I'm, I, being the pastor of third, I'm out a lot in the community. And, I, and you know what, what people say often when I tell them I'm the pastor of third, they say, wow, that is an impressive group of people. You see, those are people. I mean, that's a strong, that's a rich church. That's a capable church. That's a church of a lot of powerful, a lot of influential people. There's a lot of capabilities and a lot of resources in that church. And you know what? Often when I hear that, I, 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 I say to myself, Jesus, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Because we are in spiritual danger. Our greatest strengths are our greatest threats. The things we boast in may become our greatest downfall. And this is the problem of the church of Laodicea, and we should listen to it as a problem for us, a lukewarm faith that results from a prideful, self-sufficient, complacent, and compromising heart, and it makes Jesus sick. So that's a problem. It's heavy. So what's the prescription? What do we do? Well, thankfully, Jesus has a very clear prescription ready to give. He says it, he's he's almost like a doctor, ready to prescribe the treatment. He says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich in white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke in discipline, so be earnest and repent. You know, it is so striking here that Jesus says, those I love, I rebuke. It's, it's very important that Jesus to, to know that Jesus is saying, yeah, he's saying some very harsh things here, but that he says it out of love because he loves us and he wants us to be whole. St. Teresa of Avila was once complaining to the Lord about her suffering and how he mistreated her. And she heard the Lord say back to her, well, this is how I treat my friends. And Teresa responded, well, you shouldn't be surprised that you have so few of them. <laughs> and maybe that's how you feel. You know, you're saying, Jesus, you just said that, you, that we make you want to throw up, and now you're saying that you love us? But Jesus is a faithful friend because the most true and faithful friends you ever have will tell you like it is. I'll be honest with you. This is kind of a silly example, but I'm a fan of Seinfeld. And there's this classic example, uh, episode of Seinfeld, where Elaine is convinced that she is an amazing dancer. uh, But her friends know, Jerry, George, and Kramer all know that she is actually a horrible dancer, and she constantly is embarrassing herself. And so they manage to film her dancing. They get it on video And then they sit down with her and watch the tape with her. And she's devastated. (laughs) She's horrified. But ultimately, she's grateful. She's so grateful that she has friends who love her enough to tell her the truth. It's loving to tell the truth not to hurt, but to heal, not to wound, but to save. And here Jesus, who is, verse 14, the faithful and true witness, the one who is the most faithful friend and who has the truest perspective on us, on you, knowing you even more than you know yourself, loves us enough to tell us the truth. But it's so hard to hear. It's so hard to hear because we see ourselves in one way, and Jesus says, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta flip your perspective upside down and tell you the truth. You say you're rich. You're actually poor. You don't have the resources you need to save yourself. You think you're so well-dressed? You're actually naked. You're exposed as a sinner, guilty before God. You think you can see so clearly? You're actually blind. You cannot see your true condition. I mean, you can almost hear the Laodiceans protesting, right? Like, whoa, 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 whoa Jesus. Like, don't you know? Can't you see? Uh, I mean, look, we got, we got all this awesome Wool and and people come from all over to and we're very generous and we're giving you know our money away and we're providing medicine for all these people poor naked blind how how dare you Jesus and Jesus says please believe me I love you I love you enough to tell you the truth that you've never really seen the truth about yourself. I want you to see it. I want you to be free. That's the first part of Jesus' prescription, accepting his diagnosis and be willing to see and admit your spiritual poverty. Can you see it? What do you need to see about yourself that you can't see? What does our church need to see about ourselves that we can't see? I've been praying that. I've been asking God to show us that, to show me that. To show us that. So admitting our spiritual poverty. But then Jesus goes on to say this in verse 18. He says, Buy gold, buy clothes, buy salve for your eyes. It's funny because Jesus just told us we don't have any money. So how is he now telling us to buy stuff? Well, this is almost certainly a reference to Isaiah 55, one, where Jesus says, Come all you who have no money. Come, buy, and eat. God invites us to acquire treasures for free, to amass blessings for nothing. And do you know what else that's called? Grace. Jesus says, I want to give you true riches, true covering, and true sight, but the only currency to get it is grace. You can only purchase these blessings by admitting your poverty, confessing your sin, renouncing your reliance on your own strength. You can only get it by saying you need it. Friends, here is an inexorable spiritual truth. Grace is available only to the measure you know you need it. Grace is only available to the measure you know you need it. Grace is only available to the measure you know you need it. If you say, I'm good, I need nothing, you cut yourself off from grace our strength, our power, our might, our wealth, our security. These things only separate us from grace and lead us into a putrid, sickening, lukewarm faith. But if we will recognize our poverty, admit it, our blindness, Jesus says, I will enrich you. I will clothe you. I will give you sight. I will give you true and lasting life. That's the prescription, admitting our need, receiving his grace. So we've seen the problem. It's bad. We've seen the prescription. It's hard, but good. So one last thing, what's the promise? You know, verse 20 and 21 give some amazing promises. Each of the seven letters contains a promise, and while by far this is the harshest of the seven letters, this letter also includes the most tender of all the promises. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. This is a, obviously a very famous verse, probably one of the most famous in Revelation, often used in evangelism um, to invite people who don't know Jesus to, to hear his voice, which is, which is fine, but note the context here is not actually to non-Christians. It's to lukewarm Christians. Uh, it's, it's, to, it's, it's honestly to people like me and you and us. It's an invitation to people like us. And it's so beautiful that Jesus is knocking. He comes to those who have lost their heat and lost their passion. He's come to those who are compromised and complacent. He's come to those who've lost their wholehearted service to the Lord. And he says, he knocks and he knocks and he says, I'm here for you. I I am not going to abandon you. I see the full truth of who you are and though It has made me sick. I love you, and I'm not going anywhere, and I am not going to walk away until you let me in. This is most likely a reference to the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2. My beloved is knocking, and I arise for him. See, this is not the image of of an angry taskmaster banging on the door. This is the image of a lover tenderly knocking on the door, calling out to his beloved, He says, I'm here to love you. I'm here to make it right, to eat with you, which in ancient times is a powerful image of intimate friendship and fellowship. And so there he is. He's knocking. He's not going to bang down the door. He's not going to bust in. Notice the door only opens from the inside. He will not coerce. He will not manipulate you. But he will wait. And he will keep on knocking and he will sit on your stoop and he will sit on your porch and he won't go away and he will keep on knocking until you let him in. That's the first promise. And there's another amazing promise. It says verse 21, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Y'all, this is amazing. In the creed a few minutes ago, we just confessed Jesus Christ sat down at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Why is Jesus sitting on the throne of God? Because he earned it. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose for us. He ascended, right? He did everything the Father called him to do. So why then would we be invited to sit on the throne with Jesus? Only because he earned it for us. Because he did it all for us. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose for us. And now he is offering to us, those who made him sick through their betrayal and compromising hearts, he is offering us a very real sharing of his eternal throne. Have you ever profoundly failed and let your boss down at work? Imagine sitting in your office, ashamed, drafting your own resignation, And suddenly you hear a knock on the door and you hear your boss's voice. Open up. And you tense up, afraid to face him. And then you hear your boss say, let me in. I'm going to help you. I'm not going to leave you. If you will listen, respond, and learn, I will make you a partner with me in this company. I will make you a co-owner. I will give you everything. This is what Jesus is offering. And you would never walk away from a job like that. You might never walk away from a Lord like this. No shame. Only grace. Only welcome. Sharing his table. Sharing his throne. So we saw the problem and the prescription and the promise. And now we come to the table. And I want you to know, friends, that Jesus is here. He is with you. In your own homes, he promises to be with us through his spirit, especially when we break the body and the blood. And he is inviting you to do just a couple of things. He's inviting you first to, to confess, to repent, to admit your spiritual poverty, to admit your nakedness, to admit your blindness. Uh, he's asking us, the affluent Christians that we are, he's asking us to, to, to listen to his harsh diagnosis of our spiritual, lukewarm faith, and to repent. But it's not the only thing he's doing. He's also inviting us to receive. He's offering you himself. Yes, we're poor, uh, naked, and blind, but Jesus himself, the rich one of heaven, became poor for us. Jesus, the one who sees all, became uh, blind through his suffering. His, he was blindfolded. He was beaten. He was pinned to a cross. He was stripped naked for us. Jesus became the things we are that we might become what he is. And he gives everything to us. So friends, as we approach the table, will you hear his knock? Will you open the door? Will you come to the feast? Will you receive his grace?